0: Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we can worship you. Thank you, Lord. Higher than the highest thought is your ideal for mankind. Lord, thank you that you are a God that reaches down to where we are at and you lift us up. We pray and ask for the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray you would speak to us. And we also pray for young Kiai, Lord Chris and Sherry's granddaughter, Father, you said that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And right now, Lord, we pray and ask that the creator of the universe would fight for her life. We pray you would bless this young child, that she would be born healthy. Lord, we supplicate your throne together as a church family. And we are asking you, God, because we know your throne is a throne of grace. Bless her, Lord, and bless the family. Thank you, God, for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Just a reminder, what's happening today at 6 o'clock? Patterson Consecration Night, right? Now, whether or not you're planning to be at Patterson as a missionary... It is very important that we as a church family are there as much as possible. Um, This is all God's work, right? And because we're God's people, we want to participate in it, whether or not we are going to be there as missionaries. It starts at 6 o'clock and will be done by 8 o'clock. It'll give you an opportunity to check out the church where we're going to be renting um, the area, and it's approximately 25 minutes from Ceres to that church, The maps are going to be located in the lobby, so if you need a map after service, you can go get one. Also, a reminder that it's not this uh, Sabbath, but next Sabbath, from 4 to 5, we're going to have a special outreach, just putting up um, door hangers all over Patterson. Well, church family, the name of the sermon today is called Needing a what? Needing a Nehemiah. How many people have read the story before of Nehemiah? Raise your hand. Okay, less than half. All right. All right. Well, here's a a wonderful thing that we can learn from the story of Nehemiah. It basically shares a principle that's found throughout Scripture. It's the principle that when God steps into an ordinary life, that ordinary life can become an extraordinary life. Amen? And so what you're going to discover in the book of Nehemiah, it's the story of how God used a very simple person, a very common person, and used him to change all of Israel and be part of what was happening during those prophetic movements. The great thing about um, this book, the Bible, is that this principle is throughout all of Scripture, how God takes normal, everyday people... People who have variant backgrounds. People who have sinful pasts. People who have a lot of issues. How God takes people like that and transforms them into champions of truth. Can you say amen to that? And this is so wonderful. In fact, when I was younger, I never forgot this story I had read. It was this fiction, uh, tale of fiction about how there were these people who were invading America. It's a story about how uh, these individuals from a foreign country. It was a really old story. And this group of people that were in a mall realized that they were being surrounded, that America was being invaded. The mall was cut off. And all of a sudden, this group of people inside the mall, common people from everyday walks, begin to band together and fight off this invading force that had entered into America. You want to protect the malls, don't you? And so what happened was, as they were defending this themselves against these invaders, they were able to fought, fight them off, and a, a particular leader arose during that time. What was so unusual was that when people asked him, Are you ex-military? Were you trained by the government? His only response was, I am a TV salesman. I am a TV salesman. That's all I do. Yet because of the right moment and the right opportunity, an ordinary man became an extraordinary leader. The great thing about the Bible is because of Jesus, every one of us has that wonderful opportunity. And what we're going to discover is in the book of Nehemiah, a simple man who had a very, uh, you can say, interesting employment... God used him to change the face of Israelite culture. Everybody take your Bible. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to be getting into the Bible today. And you're going to be, uh, we're going to be learning some very interesting characteristics about this man who was a catalyst for all of Israel. Are you all there? Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1. Look what the Bible says right here. Now, you got to pay attention. You're going to see something very beautiful here. Look how it starts off. The word of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of what? Chislev. Notice this. In the 20th year, as I was in Chushan the citadel. Now, watch what happens, how the, the story begins to develop. Take a good look that Hanani one of my brethren came with men from Judah and I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped who had survived the captivity and concerning Jerusalem so all of a sudden information comes back to Nehemiah this unusual or you can say ordinary individual and he begins to find out about what happened to the Jews the Jews were actually released by a previous Persian king to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild after the Babylonian destruction. However, they got discouraged because of the intensity of the work and the immensity of, of the situation. And so here Nehemiah is, he's just there, and he begins to find out what the current situation is of his brother and his family that were supposed to be doing an awesome thing in Israel. Let's continue. Verse 3, and they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great, what? Distress. And what? Now, what does the word distress mean, ladies and gentlemen? What does it mean? When you're in great distress, you're in great, what? Fear, trouble. Sometimes it has that additive, or you could say of discouragement, but he doesn't just say they are in great distress. He says that they have what? Reproach. Who knows what reproach means? Shame. In other words, they seem to be attacked from the people and the nations around them. Let's continue. This is interesting. The walls of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with what? Fire. In other words, the outer layer, the protective layer of Jerusalem, the place where the temple of God was supposed to be, was destroyed. Let's continue. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and what? Wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now the unusual thing about Nehemiah is this, ladies and gentlemen. Nehemiah's profession was a cup bearer. In other words, he was somebody who was employed by the king to do two things. Number one, to test the wine to see that it wasn't poisonous. And the way you would discover it was poisonous was what? You would die. Can you just imagine what kind of training that might be? Drink and die. Now you know it's poisonous. So here he is. His job was to just test out the wine to make sure it wasn't poisonous. But the second thing was, he had to serve that wine and wait for the king to be thirsty. And so here he was, he would take that wine and he would just sit there, or stand there. And as he stood there, he'd wait for the king, and the king would say, then bring me a cup of wine. And the wine would come, and he would serve it. And he would have to keep silent. He was not somebody who could, uh, you know, counsel the king. Now just think about this a cupbearer to the king. How much in education and training is really involved in just doing that? It's not like you need a doctorate to be a cupbearer, amen? It's very simple. Let me show you how it's done. Amazing, isn't it? Some of you are thinking, I wish my husband would learn how to do that, right? But here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. Nehemiah was just a simple man who had a very simple profession, obviously in the midst of this palace. But this is all he would do. But we're told that he also had a burden for, his, for the children of Israel that were in Israel that were not able to finish the work of rebuilding Jerusalem. He begins to weep and he begins to pray. Now watch how chapter 1 ends. Go to verse 11. This is amazing. You're going to really love this right here. He begins to pray this very long prayer. Look at verse 11. Oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to what? The prayer of your servants. Now notice this. To the prayer of your servants who desire to fear a name. Now notice this next part. Pay attention here. And let your servant prosper when? This day. It says in some translations, today. What was Nehemiah praying for that day, ladies and gentlemen? He was praying for an opportunity. He was praying for an opportunity. Which day was he praying for that opportunity? That very day. Now watch this. To prosper this day, I pray, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now notice this. For I was the king's, what? Cupbearer. Now this is where it gets very interesting. Now watch what happens here. Take a good look at this quote right here found in Prophets and Kings. This is what Ellen White says right here. Very beautiful. I prayed, he said, to the God of heaven. In that brief prayer, Nehemiah pressed into the presence of the king of kings and one to his side a power that can turn what? hearts as the rivers of waters are turned. Nehemiah knew that he could pray to the king of kings, and the king of kings could influence this king. The Bible says he sets up kings and he takes down kings. And ladies and gentlemen, I have seen this for myself. I never forgot, uh, I was asked to participate, um, I was asked to accompany a woman whose son was on, was in um, a court case. He had been arrested for stealing a car. He wasn't actually stealing the car. What happened was he was borrowing the car from his friend who stole it, and he got caught. And you always wonder who knows what in those situations, right? Because everyone's innocent in jail. And so here was the situation, and the mom asked me to show up. And we had been doing a very special prayer time for the judge that when the case would come up, that when the case would come up, that the young man would be be given another opportunity of freedom. And so we're watching the case and there was all these people who were lined up wearing orange jumpsuits and the judge would just say, all right, looked at the case, didn't even bat an eyelid. Four years in prison. Next. Next somebody came up, somebody came up with similar crimes. Looks at the record. Five years in prison. Next up. Three years in prison. And he was just doing this, and we were just praying really strong right at that very moment. And all of a sudden, uh, my friend's son went up there, and the judge, here he is, I never forgot, was just staring intensely at his face. He's there, he's looking at the thing, and he's about to raise up his hand when all of a sudden, he turns, and he has this unusual, confused look on his face. He releases his hand, looks at the paper, looks at the young man, looks at the paper, then looks at the young man, And he says, son, I'm going to put you on 90 days of probation. And we recognized that God was pressing upon the heart of this judge. Ladies and gentlemen, when we are brought into certain situations, we need to pray to a God of heaven, to the God of heaven who can change hearts. Amen? He can change hearts. But notice what happens in chapter 2. This is very interesting. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. This is interesting. And it came to pass in the month of what? Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, in other words, the same year he was praying, when wine was before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been in the sad in his presence before. The king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Now, notice this. But so I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, lies waste and the gates are burned with fire? Now, notice verse 4. Then the king said to me, What do you what? Request. What month did this happen, ladies and gentlemen? Chapter 2 says what month it was. N- Nisan, <laughs> Nisan, right? It was actually four months later in the Jewish calendar. In Nehemiah chapter 1, when was he praying for an opportunity to talk to the king? (laughs) What did the verse, what was it? That very day. Now let me ask you a question. Did it happen that very day? Did it happen that very day? No. Oh, are you sure about that? When did the request actually take place? How many months later? Four months later. When you read the book of Daniel chapter 9, the Bible describes an experience where Daniel had been praying for three weeks about something. The angel Gabriel came to him and he says, the very day you prayed, we heard you, but we were resisted by the prince of Persia. In other words, the very time that Daniel was praying, God was already in the process of answering that prayer, but he was dealing with certain dynamics of this world. And so here Nehemiah was praying, and at first glance it seems, well, his prayer was not being answered. But the truth of the matter was, God was already in in the dynamics of the situation. You know what we begin to understand about this game changer, Nehemiah? He was a man of prayer, amen? Amen. He was somebody who prayed. And he was praying for opportunities to bless the people of God. And when the opportunity came, notice what happens next. This is amazing, okay? Go back to Nehemiah chapter 2. Watch what happens after verse 4. This is interesting. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Notice this, he's sending up brief prayers. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight... I ask that you send me to where? To Judah, to the city of my father's what? Tombs that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I set before him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, now notice this, look at his boldness. If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that they must permit me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and then he doesn't just stop there. Look what he says next. And for the house that I, that I will occupy. Now let me ask you a question. Does this sound like Nehemiah was just... Splurting out words at that very moment. What does it sound like? Nehemiah was preparing for answered prayer. It's not like he just came up that, with that stuff at that very moment. When he began to pray, Nehemiah began to prepare for the answer to those prayers. Ladies and gentlemen, when you begin to realize why Nehemiah was a a game changer, a catalyst, is because he was a man of faith. He didn't just pray for victories. He was preparing for them. You know, uh, I hate talking about this subject, but I'm going to do it. Joyce Mulligan always, you know, every time I see her, she's always like, we're praying for you, Pastor Nell. That's what she always says to me. And I know what she means when she says that. And you know what she means when she says that. And she brings it up during the conference prayer time. It's quite embarrassing when everybody knows. Oh, you're the guy that we're praying for. Oh, oh yeah, that's you. Yeah. And it's so funny. She told me this unusual story one day. She was trying to convince me to listen to her. She said, we actually had about three or four women who, let me finish, who were praying, who were praying for spouses. I said, oh, that's cool, you know, whatever, you know. And then, you know what she says to me? She says, they even bought wedding dresses in faith. And she says, within three or four months later, they were all married. There's hope for some of you single people over there in the congregation. Amen? Amen? Oh, come on. Here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. Nehemiah didn't just come up with all these these plans. Look how extensive they were. He was saying, look, hey, I need you to send me back to Judah. Also, I need two different letters. And he had already um, delegated where those letters, where he wanted them to be. And not only that, he also said, I need uh, something to build my house. This wasn't thought of at that very moment when the king said to him, what do you request? He had been preparing for the answers to those prayers. Amen? And that's the kind of person Nehemiah was, and that's the kind of people we should be. Even Jesus said in talking about a parable that had end-time applications, he said, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith? pointing to the end-time generation, whether or not they would truly be a people of prayer, a people of faith. Nehemiah was a man who God chose for those times, but he was a man of faith. He also thought, and he was, he was very thoughtful and diligent, and he began to work with divinity in preparing to those for those mighty answers. You know what's very interesting? Pay attention to what he's actually asking the king. Just think about it. He's not asking the king for little things, is he? Do you know what he's actually asking for? Do you know how much timber he was actually asking this king for to rebuild the walls that were broken down? The walls were several miles long all the way around Jerusalem. And not only that, he also had the nerve to say, I need some timber for my own house too. You know, I heard this interesting story, a parable. About this group of people that were lined up to talk to a king. The first man comes and he says, King. The king said, What do you request? And the man says, King, I'm having a dispute with my neighbor. I need you to take care of my neighbor. The king shrugged. And then the next man came forward and he says, King, he says, I broke a wheel on my carriage. He says, I need help fixing that wheel. The king shrugged. The next guy comes up and he says, King, give me half of your kingdom. And the king smiled and rewarded him with many lands. You want to know why? Because it was a request worthy of a king. It was a request worthy of a king. Now, just think about who we served. We serve the God of the entire universe. The king who is above any earthly um, leader. The king of kings. Now, just think about the request. Now, I fully believe God's interested in blessing you in the small things. But how many times have we backed away from big prayers? And here God is, he has all the resources, all the wealth, and he is waiting to provide, waiting for people to challenge him in regards to prayer. God is looking to answer God-sized prayers. Can you say amen to that? And here Nehemiah is, a cupbearer, and he had been praying for an opportunity, and he felt spirit-led to present these before that earthly king. And if that earthly king was saying, I'll do this for you, how much more would God do it for you, ladies and gentlemen? Amen? We begin to understand something about Nehemiah. He wasn't a man who was seeking after greatness. He was somebody who was seeking after the glory of God. That was his primary motive in everything. I was telling this to the group of young adults yesterday night, that all our prayers that we pray must be in subordination to the glory of God. And if it is not to the glory of God, we have made an idol. Amen? Let's continue to understand something more about Nehemiah. Here, Nehemiah is given permission. The king delighted to bless him. The king delighted to give him that which he asked. And so Nehemiah began the journey to rebuild the walls. And what is so interesting is, Nehemiah began to stir up the people, and a lot of people began to come to the aid of this cupbearer to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, what is so unique is, there were various families that had, um, you could say, certain issues, but they began to participate in the building of the wall. Take your Bible, go to Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to show you what some of these people were and how they were able to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah chapter 3, are we all there? Sorry, chapter 3. And there's a lot of Jewish names I will do the best to pronounce. Here we go. Chapter 3, let's start with verse 3. Also the sons of Hanasna built the fish gate, and they laid its what? Beams and hung its doors with bolts and bars. And next to them Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Koz made repairs. And next to them, Mushulam, the son of Barakiah, the son of Mezhezabel, made repairs. Now notice this. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, made repairs. Now notice verse 5. Next to them, the Tikoites made repairs. But notice this. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Here Nehemiah begins to actually record those who were involved in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. This place was to be the center of God's glory, a light to the nations. And yet those who were supposed to, who were given the greatest privileges were not participating in the work of rebuilding. It was too inconvenient. It was too beneath them. And so Nehemiah records their nobles, their leaders of this particular group did not do the work. But then he continues. Notice the various individuals. Go to verse 11. Oh, I'm going to try to pronounce that one. Malchijah, the son of Hiram, the, and Hashbub, the son of Pahath, Moab, repaired another section, now notice this, as well as the Tower of the Ovens. I really want to know what the Tower of the Ovens is. Verse 12. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Holoish, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. And notice this. He and his What? daughters made repairs you know who was involved one of the workers you know who he got it wasn't his sons it was who he got his daughters involved in the work he's like you're going to join us And here they were. They were putting those bricks into that wall. And they were making, uh, you know, that plaster and that cement. And here they were. These women, these daughters. This man said, no. My daughters are going to have the privilege of building Jerusalem the center of God's glory. Amen? But notice this. He continues. Go all the way to verse 14. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, the leader of the district of Beth-Hecherim, repair the What? Refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with bolts and bars. What kind of gate did he build, ladies and gentlemen? It was where human waste went. Now imagine, here you are, you're recorded forever and ever as the man who rebuilt the gates where human waste would be exited out of Jerusalem. But this man did not think it was beneath him to do such things. He saw it as a privilege. You see what's so interesting? Sometimes being, working and being involved in the work of God or in life, we're so quick to want to do the things that everyone will give you praise and glory for. The, the one where everyone will stand up and say, thank you so much for what you do. But there are those... Who understand better. And they think to themselves, whatever matter, whatever issue God has for me to do, duty, I will do it. And they will take joy. The Bible talks about Jesus becoming a man. This man exemplified the mission of Christ. Amen? Let's continue. Go all the way to verse 22. Take a good look at some of the other people. And after them, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. And after him, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs. Opposite their what? House. And after them, Azariah, the son of Mensesia, the son of Ananiah, made repairs by What? his house. Notice this. These individuals, you know what they begin to do? They go outside, right outside their house, and start fixing the wall, and start repairing. Their homes were actually set up near the place where they needed to do their ministry. That's where their houses were. So all they need to do is just walk outside, stretch, grab some tools, and start working at that wall. Ladies and gentlemen, we have developed a culture these days where, you know, you sort of like when it comes to the church or when it comes to the ministry of God, you know, you you sort of move somewhere and then you say, well, I'll just find a church. But these people recognize something. Where God's home is, that's where I'll be. The Bible talks about Joshua. Do you know when Joshua divided up all the land? At the very end, it says that Joshua chose a place. And one of the commentators put it this way. He actually chose a place not several miles away from the sanctuary. He chose a place that was less than one day's journey from the sanctuary. Think about it. The leader of Israel could have chosen any place, the best mountains, the best country. He chose a place where he could be uh, close to God and to minister to God. And so here you have this group of people who begin to be revived under Nehemiah's leadership. And they begin to participate in the work of God. But Nehemiah comes across another obstacle. Everybody take your Bible. Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. And if you're there, go ahead and say amen. Now look what happens in Nehemiah's experience. As the work of rebuilding is going forward. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against the who? Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, are sons, and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Verse 3. Then there were those... Also, some who said we have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. What begins to be described to us is that many of the Jewish brethren who, because of poverty, had to actually sell their land and their animals. But when they couldn't pay off the bill still, they had to become these kinds of indentured servants, almost borderline becoming slaves to their brethren. And so they begin to cry out, we can't keep doing this work when we're dealing with this oppression over here. The laws of Israel that Moses had given to his people was that every seventh year, you are to forgive all your debts. Wipe them clean. And so that those who, were, who owed money to you would have a chance to start again. And so the situation, here Nehemiah is, he has this leader, this cup bearer, TV salesman, he's there, And a situation comes to him. And it has to do with financial matters. Apparently there was extortion and abuse taking place. A lack of equality. When it was a time to rebuild and to focus on this, you had individuals that were so focused on their own profit. And so Nehemiah begins to deal with the situation. Go all the way to verse 6. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and the rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting ushery from his brother. That's interest. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who we were sold into the nations. And look what he says. Now indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? And so look what happens next. Then they were what? Why were they silenced? Because they're right. Nehemiah's right. And here he is, he's rebuking these people on the way that they were using their money. But fast forward all the way to verse 14. Now you're about to see how Nehemiah dealt with his own finances moreover from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes 12 years neither I I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions Nehemiah was the governor at that time but he would not accept the governor's provisions because he recognized the financial state of Israel he said look I am not going to take my portion here it needs to be used for something else notice what happens next But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people, took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I also continued to work on this wall and we did not buy any land. All of my servants were gathered there for the work. Verse 17, and at my table, in other words, this is who he provided for with his provisions or his savings account, you could say were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox, sheep six choice sheep, and fowl were prepared for me, and once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on the people. Now notice what he says in verse 19. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for all my people. He's not just talking about Lord Take note of me, oftentimes in scripture, remembrance had to do with reminding God of the covenant. And he said, God, remember your covenant. Remember your covenant, not so much for God's sake, but for our own. But Nehemiah begins to deal with an issue. And the issue was that the finances were not used appropriately and in the way that would glorify God. You know, I've been really convicted about something lately. God has been laying a burden on my heart again and again and again. It's this. Take your Bible, go to Proverbs 11. You're going to see this very interesting, scary principle. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. You are not there that fast. That's impossible. I was like, Proverbs, amen, we're there. Okay. Proverbs 11... Oh, my goodness. <laughs> verse 24. Look at Proverbs 11, verse 24. This is amazing right here, guys. This principle is an amazing principle. Look what it says. There is one who what? Scatters, yet increases what? More. There is one who withholds more that is what? Right. In other words, someone who's holding back what he should have been giving. Notice this. But it leads to what? Poverty. The generous soul shall be made rich, and he who waters will also himself be watered himself. The people will curse him who withholds grain, and the blessing will be on the head of the ha- him who sells it. Go to verse seven of the very next chapter, uh, chapter thirteen. Look what it says: There is one who makes himself what rich, but yet has what nothing, and the one who makes himself poor yet has great riches. The Bible here is describing something very interesting about Nehemiah. Nehemiah, because the reason why he was a catalyst, a game changer, is because he was a generous man. The spirit of Christ was upon him. When he saw need and the the, the time to provide for others, he would quickly give his money away to support others. Now, Nehemiah was a balanced individual. He knew that he wasn't just going to completely deplete his account. He knew how to work in such a way where he could survive on what he had, yet make sure others were surviving upon that as well. God is wanting us to grow in generosity. And I really believe that there is a principle here in Scripture. You know, I I was recognizing this when I was studying a story with somebody. Luke chapter 5, it was a story when Peter had a miserable day of fishing, didn't catch anything. And he's cleaning that net over and over again. You clean that net to preserve that net. You get the gunk off, and it's not an easy thing. You clean that net very well. And the very next morning, that very morning, Jesus says, I need you to borrow your boat. Peter's tired, he's worn out. Jesus steps into his boat. And then Peter has to remain there while Jesus is preaching Wet, And then as if it couldn't get any more inconvenient, Jesus then tells Peter, go out into the middle of the lake. So Peter is, after a long night of doing nothing, catching nothing, and trying to preserve that little net that he had, that's all he had when it came to his wealth, that boat and that net, Jesus says, go out into the middle of the lake, and when he says to him, throw out your net, you know what happens? He catches so much fish that the net itself broke. Here Peter is, was trying to preserve what little he had. Yet when he threw it out under God's direction and Christ's words and for Christ's glory, all of a sudden he had so many fishes, he can buy thousands of nets. The Bible says that the fish, he had to even get another boat nearby and the boat itself began to sink. Both boats, because they were giving, Peter threw away that which he was trying to preserve and clean. And God is trying to teach us a principle here. We can be selfish with what little we have, but this is where it comes to trust, whether or not we will give. And we will give to God's glory, even when it starts hurting us or we're scared. And that is where the greatest lessons of faith will be learned. Ladies and gentlemen, you know when a dollar has its highest value? When it's used for the glory of God. It possesses its highest value, its highest worth, and its highest use when it's used for God's service. Though none may take note of what you give, God is watching, and he will repay. That is his promise. And you will see what he has done. I have heard countless groups of people, numbers of people who gave and gave, and God miraculously gave. I remember one individual, he was a friend of mine. Here he is. He was giving, and he would pay He would pay double tithe. Tithe would go to the uh, the conference. He'd give his other 10% to the church. And then he would give offering on top of that to the place where his bank account was being deleted. And I told him, I was like, look, bro, you need to stop doing that. You need to stop. You're going to run out of money. And he kept doing that. And I kept rebuking him. I'm like, "You, you don't have money. I have to pay for your lunch sometimes, man. But let me tell you something. One day, somebody came to him and said, friend, let's go to the auto dealer. I'm going to buy you a brand new car. Bought him a brand new car. And it wasn't because he was aware of that giving. God had impressed this individual to give to him. Because he was so sacrificial. Though others weren't taking note, God was taking note. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not talking about being imbalanced with your finances. I want you to understand that. But I am teaching you, we need to learn the lesson of generosity. We need to learn that lesson. We will be blessed in the long run. It is a scary principle when God is challenging you to give. And you're like, I can't. I don't want to lose this little that I have. And God says, give. But he who scatters will end up being increased. And so Nehemiah understood this principle. But ladies and gentlemen, there was something else Nehemiah went through. Another thing that he went through, and we're winding down to this. Another thing that made him a game changer, a catalyst for the people of Israel. Somebody, another thing that took place. Take your Bible, go to Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 1. Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall. He's rallying the people to finish the work. He knows that he has a God-given duty, this cup bearer of all people. Think about it. When you think about the most qualified leader, you don't think, oh yeah, it's going to be the guy who serves wine to the king. He's totally the leadership criteria, fully. John Maxwell's book, Leadership, he'd be in there, right? You wouldn't think that. But notice what happens in chapter 6. Now you're about to see the true test of his leadership right here, the true test that separates boys from men and girls from women. Nehemiah chapter 6. And it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Jessam, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, and there was no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates. That Sanballat and Jessam said to him, Me, come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me what? Harm. Nehemiah recognized there were actually people wanting to kill his life, take his life. Take his life, because he was doing this great work. When you're about God's work, expect bad news because the devil's targeting you, amen? Don't think to yourself, oftentimes we're like, oh, bad news, something's not right. If there's a lot of bad news, praise the Lord, because you must be doing something right for the glory of God, amen? And so watch what happens next. So I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I'll leave it and go down to you? Nehemiah said, I've got to stay focused. I've got to finish this. I've got to participate in this. And I've got to see that it is completed. Even at the stake of his own life. Watch what happens next. But they sent me this message, verse 4, four times, and I answered them in the same manner. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Jeshem saying, That you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall. Now notice this, And you may be there, what? Ladies and gentlemen, Was that in Nehemiah's mind, to be king? Was it in his mind to be the leader of Israel? It was the farthest thing from his mind. I want you to pay attention to this satanic attack. The attacks come where it hurts the most. Do you know where it hurts the most? When you're accused of doing things that is in no way present in your mind and contrary to the person you are. And can you imagine when Nehemiah hears this and all of a sudden this letter comes from the surrounding nations. You're trying to be king, aren't you? Actually at that time, there was no more king. And the next king, by the way for Jerusalem, do you know who it would be? The real king? It would be Jesus. The Messiah himself would step in. Sure, there were these um, various individuals who tried to pretend to be rulers. But the real king of kings, Nehemiah recognized he was building something for the real king. And so this was contrary to his purpose. Look what happens next. According to these rumors, you were building their wall and that you may be king. Now notice what he says. And you also appointed prophets and to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. Can you imagine this? Here are these matters. He was, he was afraid because he thought, well, what if they really say they take to the king that, who gave me his grace and say the reason why Nehemiah wanted to leave is because he wanted to be a king to rebel against your authority. Now they were attacking his friends. Watch what happens next. So I sent to him saying, No, such things as you said are being done, but you invent them in your own what? Heart. Now notice what happens next. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying their work will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now notice what he says. Now therefore God strengthen our hands. Afterward I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, the son of Metabel, who was a secret informer, and he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. For they are coming to kill you. Indeed at night they will come to kill you. Imagine if someone came to you, someone who you're supposed to trust, and they said, by the way, someone's coming to your house tonight to try to kill you. Run to the temple. Run to the temple. One attack after another attack. But here's the thing. The sin Was not running, it was what would have occurred as a result of leaving that post and going to the temple. Nehemiah recognized that if he went to the temple and ran, that being this current leader, that it would inspire cowardice in the rest of the people of Israel. You know, I heard this wonderful story of Teddy Roosevelt. I like Teddy Roosevelt, Rough Riders president. And he was a president, and he was, uh, you know, he was a president at this time. And while he was about to give a speech, all of a sudden, a saloon owner went up to him, and in the midst of a, a crowd, shot him. And he went down, and they arrested that man, put him in prison. And he stood up, and there was blood right here. And his, his people, his entourage, were trying to take him to a a place where he could get help, medical help. But he says, "No, I have another meeting. I have another meeting." And so what happens is, he's insistent after 15 minutes, they were talking to him about going to He he just absolutely refused. He said, let's go to the next meeting. And he gets to the next meeting. And a great group of people are there. And the very first thing he's saying, as he's just getting a little bit tired, starting to wheeze a little bit more. And he says, I've just been shot. And he opens up his coat. And people can see the blood going down. But then he says this, but it's going to take more than that to take down a bull moose. Amen? And so after he spoke for about 15 minutes, that's when he recognized I should go to a local hospital. (laughs) But can you imagine the courage that that inspired in the people who were seeing this man who was wounded and attacked, yet he was still standing up there. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand something. Something we need to get. The attacks are going to get fiercer. The attacks are going to get stronger, more singular, more pointed on you as an individual. Obstacles will come that seem specifically designed for your life and your situation. And as the people of God head into the very darkness of the end, They will become special targets of the devil. And you will find attacks coming from every sort of place. Every sort of individual, friends, all of a sudden will betray you. People you trusted will betray you. But God is calling us to possess the same courage that Nehemiah possessed. A cup bearer. A cupbearer in 52 days led to the rebuilding of those walls. 52 days. What kind of experience did he have? What kind of leadership did he have? What kind of training he had? He had one thing. The Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of God that would not let him back down in the thick of the battle. The Spirit of Christ that would teach him, that would help him to be sacrificial, the Spirit of Christ that would use an ordinary cup cupbearer to do great things for the children of Israel. I love this powerful quote right here found in Review and Herald. It's amazing. In the ordinary walks of life, there is many a man and woman patiently treading the round of daily toil, all unconscious that he possesses power. Now notice this. If called into action would raise him to an equality with the world's most honored men. The touch of a skillful hand, the touch of God, is needed to arouse and develop those dormant faculties. In other words, things and traits and abilities because of circumstance or sin seems to be hidden, that God wants to awaken those things like he did for Nehemiah, and to raise us, to raise people like you to a level with the world's greatest leaders. The world's greatest leaders, people of the world, their memory will fade, but God is wanting to use you during this time. There are great things happening in our community, in our society with Patterson and our Church Here series. And God is wanting you to step in, to be like Nehemiah, a man of prayer, a man who prepared for those answers to prayers, a man who was generous and willing to give and sacrifice, who was an example, and a man who could not be stopped until his task was finished. That's the kind of people God is calling us to be. It was such men whom Jesus connected with himself, and he gave them the advantages of three years of training under his own care. Jesus is offering you this. If you will submit yourself to him and open your heart, God wants to bless you. How many people by the raising of their hand want to say, Lord, that's who I want to be. I want you to use me to awaken those things, those characteristics, those gifts that may be sleeping. God is excited to do that for his glory. Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for this man who fought many battles, who was committed, who was willing to risk his own life to see that you would be glorified. Oh, Lord, give us that kind of commitment, that kind of courage. Father in heaven, I just thank you that there are men and women here. Males and females who are sitting right before me, God, who you are entrusting with special gifts who may not even realize it yet. But, Father, I pray you give them opportunity after opportunity that they may use these gifts for your glory.